You're listening to the Flying Goat Farm Podcast with your host, Lisa Check. This podcast is for people who love yarn and fiber and sheep, who love to knit and crochet and maybe even felt. We will be talking about the crossroads between keeping sheep and goats, making yarn, and expressing your colorful self. Today's podcast is a conversation between Karen of Avalon Springs Farm and myself. We talk about goats and color and making yarn. I hope that you enjoy it as much as we enjoyed making it. This is Karen of Avalon Springs Farm. She's joining me today on the podcast. Um, she is a lot like me. I think you were you were raised a city girl, right? You're not. You weren't a farmer's daughter. No, I was not. Yeah, started in uh, Michigan, in Detroit, and then uh, outside of Washington, D.C. So, yeah, not a farmer's daughter. So, um, I told my listeners when I started, it was because I wanted to have some animals so I could spin uh, their fleece, and then it got out of hand. What? Why did you start to get animals? I think that it just a little bit a childhood dream um i kind of knew even though my parents were both city people i just knew i wasn't a city person uh and i think that that sort of notion remained abstract until sometime when i was an art teacher and i i discovered the maryland sheep and wool festival and i discovered um colored angora goats there and it was like love at first sight and I instant not only did I like fall in love with the personalities of the little goats at the festival but I I kept envisioning the fiber being an art project but I was totally in the dark as to what I could do so really I was putting the cart before the horse and the whole business is sort of evolved out of the just this like wild leap into, I got to do this. (laughs) Exactly. And there's nothing cuter than Angora goats. That's for sure. Oh my gosh. Yeah. (laughs) That happened to me too. Only I was in Oregon and it was the black sheep gathering that was near um, Portland that I went to and they had cashmere goats there. They had all kinds of sheep. They had alpacas and they had these goats and oh my God. They were so, so cute. And, you know, their fiber is just so gorgeous. And I kind of made my decision then. That's what I wanted. Yeah, it was both this thing of I fell in love with the little faces and the personalities of the Angora goats. But, like, I was holding their fiber in my hand thinking, oh, my gosh, I've got to, this is an art project. I don't know what art project it is. (laughs) But that's what was happening. Yeah. and they say, you know, people say who are selling the, the livestock, oh, yeah, you find new customers that way. And I've always sort of poo-pooed that, never realizing, oh, yeah, that happened to me. <laughs> yeah, so that's true. Yeah, I started out a city girl and, and slowly moved out into the country. So how did you go about getting your first animal or animals? How did that happen? Well. Um, So when I, so I kind of, when I moved to this property, I, um, 
I, this is so nerdly of me to admit this, but it goes along with the fact that I was an art teacher. And so I approached life from the art teacher or teacher point of view. And I went and took classes at, um, through the Maryland extension service. And I, I was in classes with other people who, um, somebody was a mushroom farmer and somebody was growing hostas. They were all little tiny farmettes or people with dreams of having a little farm. So I didn't feel um, like I was in with big corporate farmers in over my head with people, you know, and I didn't have an idea of what I was going to do, but they were really encouraging of matching up what you what your talents were with your property and what you could do. And that's what led me to go to the Maryland Sheep and Wolf Festival and find little goats because um, I met other people. You know, there were like turkey farmers there or something in this class. <laughs> it was a good class. It was a good class, but it was all little cottage farmers like myself. And so I can't believe I'm saying that I took a class in order to figure out what I wanted to do, but I did. I'm a teacher. So that made sense to me to like approach it like that. Yeah. Did your house already have the barn on it and fences and stuff, or did you have to build all that? So when I moved here, this little or large, but sort of funky farmhouse had nothing. It had brambles and, um, like thistles and all kinds of bushes. There was no flat ground or grassy area anywhere. And so then all of a sudden, um, the goat concept matched up with the problem with my property, which is somebody let it get overgrown for 20 years. And um, so I found um, a young kid who would help me um, put up temporary fence and then the goats would eat a little area down and then we'd move the temporary fence. And finally I have the little piece of property that I have today, which you can at least get on the lawnmower and ride for a little while. <laughs> yeah. That's surprising seeing what it is today. It's surprising that it, that it was eaten down by the goats little by little. Yeah, I know. So the, so it's very true when they say people get goats to clear land. I did that here. Um, I didn't really have to, because it was all just brush. I didn't, it wasn't as complicated as when people do it where you have to clear out a tree. It was just, it was, it was noxious weeds and brush, but you know, the previous homeowners just didn't mow the lawn. And so it was growth that, that happens when you just let it go, you know? Um, so, and I didn't even think that part through. That just was, fell into my lap that the goats were good at what I needed them to be good at. <laughs> did you start out small, like with two, or did you, did you go all in? I started out with four, and um, that's how I got the name of my farm. So I, um, just as a, an aside part of my personality, I love, I, I don't know. Um, there's sort of two things I love to read. I love to read King Arthur stories and Agatha Christie. I don't know why. That's just like I go back and forth. And so I happen to be reading some King Arthur things at the time that I found these little goats. And the people that I um, bought the goats from 
which were I people that I met from the Maryland Sheep and Wool Festival. Um, they were from uh, New York. Uh, it's Sonny and Bill Bixby. I don't know if you know that farm, but um, I've heard their names. Yeah. Yes. And so um, they advised me not to to breed. Just if I was a beginner, get some little weathers and see if I could just do the farming part. Keep these little weathers alive in all kinds of climate, you know, the winter, the summer, they need different things, different times of year. And so um, I got these four little neutered males and I thought, oh my gosh, it's like the Knights of the Round Table. (laughs) So I had an Arthur and a Merlin and a Galahad and a Lancelot and they were all these little, so that's how I started. And then I thought, well, you know, that means I have to name my farm something that came out of those books. And I had this silly little pond that was, it was more like a soupy, marshy mess. And um, so that was like a little environmental cleanup project on this piece of property too. And then the, the sort of the two came together and I'm Avalon Springs Farm. <laughs> That's cool. <laughs> That's really cool. So I so you didn't start out um, to make yarn or roving. How did how did you decide that that was the next step that you needed to take? And you know that was another one where the outside influences in one's life kind of are shouting at you, and you are putting the pieces together. Um, so I was this art teacher and I was an art teacher from the point of view that I love to paint and I love to do pottery. So I really liked color and I really liked texture, but I didn't know that my attraction to painting was as simple as my love for color. And my attraction to pottery was that I'm like a person who has to work with their hands. Um, I don't think I would have been happy like I am now if I were just to pursue the painting and teaching. Um, I just, I'm way more busy and more tactile and I have to build something, you know? Um, so when the, the goat, when the Angora goats, when you could do something with their fiber and I discovered the world of like textile art, I was like, Oh my gosh, I get to hold the art in my hands, like which is more craft art than traditional fine art. But I get to do something functional. I get to hold something, um, and I get to make you know all these gorgeous colors. Then I was like suddenly really happy, and I didn't know that it was going to work out like that. You know, I um, and and I really looked backwards at the fact that I liked painting and I liked pottery. And I was like, oh my goodness, textile art is both. You know, it's the two parts that I like in those other art elements. I never thought of that before. That's a good point. Yeah. And I bet you there's more people out there that need to think about like their different talent areas in the simplest form because it might change you know, what directions they go into. If the simplest thing that you like about painting is color, you might not be a painter. You might be a photographer or you might be a textile artist or you might be, you know, (laughs) I don't know, you know, but um, sometimes I guess it's good to think about what you're, you're, what you like about something in its most simple form. And that's what led me to the textile art. 
Um, and I really do like making the yarn even better than you know, and now we're telling the world, I'm really not a knitter. <laughs> I knit this, you guys out there in the world. And for those that are just listening to this, I have a simple rectangular scarf on. <laughs> the most basic thing, the thing that you teach beginner knitters. And um, so I don't approach the world of yarn much more sophisticated than being a very basic knitter because I love to make the yarn even more than the knitting. Yeah. That's what kind of sets us apart from some of the um, other indie dyers that are out there that have come from the world of knitting because we see it really differently, not only because we're fiber farmers, but also because we are not uh, avid knitters. I can do some stuff, but I'm not a knitter either. I didn't come from that, from that world. Yes, you were really textile-based, weren't you, with the weaving? Yeah, I started out as a weaver, and then and, and because I couldn't find the colors that I wanted to weave with, and because I was interested in ecot, which is a dyeing technique, that I had to learn how to dye, so I came at it through that way. And I only have to knit because I have to tell people about the yarn, right? Yeah. People have yeah. questions about the yarn. That's right. And you also did um, quilting and you also did photography and right. like and spinning. Yeah. But a central core part of your personality must also be color, because if you think about photography and quilting, they are so a, a love of color is so essential or a right. talent with color is so essential in both of those other fields. It makes sense to me why you do this. Yeah. yeah. For both yeah. of us. Yeah, make, it does make sense. Um, but you're right about the, um, the yarn production point. That is like, um, I often find that I'm speaking a slightly different language to my knitters when they always think about a skein of yarn as either three and a half ounces or four ounces, or is it in grams or is it in ounces or whatever. Um, and they're not at all thinking of it as yards per pound. I define my yarn in much larger terms than the end knitters do. And then an end knitter will complain, is this a DK weight or a sport weight? And I'm going, well, let's look at how it was spun. <laughs> you know, how many yards? how many yards are in a pound of that thing? And what fibers were was it made of? Because, you know denser fibers can make a heavier yarn look thinner, you know, and um, fluffier finer fibers can make a finer yarn look fatter. And so then when end knitters kind of are upset that something has a label on it and is defining it as sport or decay, and they're looking at it and it doesn't make sense to them why it is one or the other, then I'm like, well, from the production end of making the yarn, it makes perfect sense why it's labeled as this or that. Because a pound of merino looks very different than a pound of silk. Right. You know, in the raw material, you know. And what I've been trying to say too, especially since we both do farm yarns, um, is that when you take it to the mill, 
it's like that whole uh, yards per pound thing is on a continuum and they can't because it's a small run even if it's 100 pounds that's still a small run it's not like making thousands of pounds that it that those small mills don't hit like dk weight right on the money right it all depends on how the how the fiber wants to spin does it want to spin thinner or does it you know or is it a little bit heavier all of those things and so my yarns aren't exactly on you know that the standard yarn weights that people are looking for yeah and i think you have found that too right yes absolutely um i know uh knitters sometimes are bothered by that yarn craft council chart where there's overlap in the definition of what we were talking about sport versus um dk or dk versus worsted and Aaron and on and on um and that there's a margin for error but again that gets into if you bring this year's fleeces and this was a I don't know, environmental factors change what the fleeces are like or your recipe for what the end yarn, is it 12% of uh, some bamboo, uh, bamboo that you're adding in with your merino or 15% bamboo that you're adding in with your merino and what is your merino like that year? Um, that, that, even if they all things being equal, even if the mill does an extraordinarily fine job of spinning it exactly the way that they did last year, the fibers might not even behave the same way. Exactly. If it's a dry year or if it's a wet year or if it was a buggy year. And so, you know, there was more stress on the animals. All those Uh, things we have to take into account. So I, I think uh, it makes us um, advocates of, yarn of knitting and yarn application matching your end application for the purpose of your yarn with the yarn that you're holding in your hand rather than the other way around rather than I'm looking at blue yarn and I really want this to be a hat uh, because I want a blue hat Um, we come at it from the other way and saying well what's a good use for this particular fiber content um what's a good use for this particular weight of, of yarn? Um, you know, what, what does this yarn feel like? Uh, and then say, well, this, maybe this isn't a hat. Maybe, you know, um, maybe, this maybe it's is, a sweater. Yeah. Maybe it's a sweater. Maybe, um, maybe it has a utilitarian purpose. Um, like, uh, outside of clothing, you know, right. Like a rug or a table runner or something like that. If it's too, I hate to use the word scratchy, but if it's, you know, not something that you would want to actually wear next to your skin or even with a turtleneck underneath. Yes. Maybe it's a basket. Maybe it's a basket. (laughs) Yes. You don't rub a basket on your cheek, but oh my gosh, when you need one, you need one. (laughs) Um, yeah, yeah. So, so tell us about your farm yarns. So what kind of, um, farm yarns do you have and like what kind of fiber content do you, do you have? So I am on a mission to redefine, um, the reputation of mohair, uh, that comes from the Angora goat world. 
It's so funny. I run into that all the time. People are like, oh, mohair. Oh, no, no, no. And um, that's an you know, a really outdated and ancient reputation. Yes, mohair was used in the Civil War for uniforms, and I'm sure those uniforms weren't luxurious and soft. And it's been used in upholstery, and it's been used in the rug industry. Um, but the, those uses are because mohair is strong, not because mohair is scratchy. Hey, universe, you've got that wrong. Um, or consumer universe. You got that wrong. Um, but there's an entire flock of people like myself all around this country in particular, but globally that have gotten into, um, selecting, um, and breeding towards, um, really celebrating the finer aspects of mohair. And as long as you don't shear every animal and put it into one pile and you separate out fleeces that are finer from, you know, a 12 year old goat that is good for, (laughs) yeah, that fiber is just good for rugs, but you know, a goat that's one or two, you know, oh my goodness, their fiber is so soft. And I know that the people listening to this probably don't know the term might micron count but some will some won't um it's really it's when you put the fiber under a microscope and and you do a measurement that equates to its fineness and mohair falls within the exact same range as alpaca fiber and the only industry the only difference between the alpaca fiber industry and the angora goat or mohair industry is marketing they're both 20 yeah 20 to 40 microns for both animals. But the alpaca industry has done a a terrific job of pulling out the fleeces that are finer and then purposing, purposefully uh, marketing those to people who knit. And so I think that, um, that the group of farmers that are like me need to learn from that and do the same thing. Um, so a lot of my farm yarns are mohair based, not all of them, because I've had some alpacas here, uh, uh, over the years. And so I have a lot of alpaca based farm yarn, but they're mostly combinations of, of, uh, the mohair, the alpaca. And then I usually go around to local Maryland farms and, and get the third ingredient wool. And, um, that's actually been rather liberating because I've gotten to make change the character of my yarns very easily by getting a different clip of, um, of wool and mixing it in. Um, so, you know, sometimes I feel like, you know, what the alchemist who's looking for the gold. <laughs> Merlin. Um, it's like Merlin. Yes. We're like, we do that too. When we're like trying to find that golden yarn with our, um, with our fiber, you know, oh, does this breed of wool uh, and this uh, character definition of the fiber match up with the mohair that I have and what will that be like? And um, so um, I have a, I guess I should, um, so some farm yarns I have, uh, they're all sort of artsy novelty yarns. I have some three ply yarns in a, 
yarn that I called point shoes because it's after like a ballet point shoes. I have uh, Excalibur yarn, which is sparkly like the sword. Um, I do have, um, I have ones that I've done with silk. I, so I have varied them by ingredient or by yarn weight um, or by some novelty preparation of the fiber. Um, and, and most of them are on my website now. It did take me a little while to move from an in-person vendor to an online vendor, but I'm moving as fast right. as I can. Right. It's a work in progress, right? Yes. So yes. Are, do you dye the, your fleeces first and then have them spun or are, you, are they spun, you know, natural color or natural white and then you dye them? So when I first started, I was a strong believer in I should dye all the fibers first because if you do that, you get an amalgamated process, you know, all the variants in the way the fibers take the dye is all blended together when they make the yarn. And then the finished yarn has this very uh, polished, uh, almost commercial look. Uh, it all might be one color, but it's all perfectly amalgamated into right. that. Blended. Color. Yeah. Yeah. Blended. Um, and so I, I did that for, I did it that way for a long time. And really I was led by the public to do other things. So now I do kind of a, just a big combination. Um, so some, some yarns, I have them spun in their natural color and dye them when I get them back. And some, I send the fiber off to the mill already dyed. Um, yeah. And that's actually fun too. I never knew that this whole um, other, I would have so much fun doing it in a mix approach as opposed to just one or the other. Uh, it, I guess it was becoming like a job, you know, to do it. Right. right. And then it takes the creativity away, right? Yeah. 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 And then your customers say, well, you don't seem to have any of this or that. I would like to see you, uh, your work in this or that. And then you think, oh my goodness, I just <laughs> made all this yarn in, you know, purple or green and you would like it both. <laughs> yeah. Or you want something or blue, something totally different that you haven't done yet. Yeah. <laughs> so some, yeah. And I guess maybe it is a good thing when the public pulls you along in a, in a direction that they want to see uh, your artwork on something that they want to knit with. You know, that's okay, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> so um, what I'm at, what I ask everybody on the podcast is I have five questions. So what's happening on your farm today? Um, well, we just did, we just, uh, did a little shearing of all of this year's baby goats. So I do need to take that fiber and do something with it quickly because sometimes I let the fiber sit around and then I lose track in my head of what I was going to do with it. So, you know, we're here, we're home. I need to work on what am I doing with all this kid mohair? Um, it's about to be breeding season. And I used to breed every goat every year. And I don't do that anymore. Um, I'm breeding a little bit uh, sooner than I used to because of climate change and wanting my kids 
born a little sooner so that they're a little bit older. I can't believe I'm doing, you know, climate change is affecting my little microcosm world. Right. Um, And then I'm also doing a little less breeding because I'm finding that the longer that I do this, the more I really only want to produce the amount of goats and new stock that I want to use myself. Right. Um, I'm not really a breeder for the sake of being a breeder. I'm only a breeder for the sake of the continuation of my own um, little business. So so I'm about to pick which buck I use and probably, you know, less than six, about a half dozen girls um, will get bred this year. So that's the just happened and just about to happen, which means moving them around in different fences, you know, barns. I know because yeah. we got we got treason from you, and yeah. and he wanted to breed with everybody, and we had to get out of he we had to get a new home for him soon because he was taking down taking out all the gates. Um, gorgeous goat, but it was a little bit much for our bill to handle. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So the second question is for uh, complete the statement. Fiber farming is. Fulfilling and fun. <laughs> I can't believe I did that succinctly. Oh my gosh. And yeah. it's all, and it's all alliteration too. It's all apps. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh my goodness. Does that prove that we are teachers? I guess so. <laughs> our chalkboard in the classroom. Yeah, really. Where's your whiteboard? Um, what, what has been your favorite binge watch since we've been hunkered down at home? Okay, this goes, circles right back to the beginning of our conversation. Um, I just uh, showed um, my two daughters, um, Agatha Christie, and they're, I have like a giant collection of them in the attic, but we found these old BBC productions of Agatha Christie, and we've oh, been... Cool. <laughs> so what did we watch? We watched... Um, uh, Murder a Fowl last night on our binge watch. <laughs> Which was a Miss Marple murder mystery. <laughs> oh, that's cool. So are you, you finding those on Netflix or where are you finding those? Um, we found, MP? Yeah, one was just through the Comcast and then a couple have been on, on Netflix. But yes, actually my daughters are very good at going through all the platforms. If I tell them, oh, let's go look for, you know, uh, they will look on every platform we have. <laughs> oh, that's cool. That sounds like fun. And it sounds like a good family, family activity. Yes. Your favorite quarantine or pandemic meal. Um, We want to eat less meat. And so we're now experimenting with tofu. And so, yeah, I'm so excited. I know other people are like tofu. I know. I'm I'm one of those. I don't think I would like to eat it, but I want to hear what what you're making. That's so good. So we did one where I'm sure it had lots of calories because it was lightly fried where you make it into little cubes and then you encrust the outside. So it has like a little bit of, um, you know, cause tofu's like kind of like jello <laughs> in a strange sort of way. So when you cubed it and you did this little 
kind of seared it with the breadcrumbs on the outside. You kind of gave it a little stand upishness. Um, so we did that. That was very good. And then we are just now doing it in a Chinese dish where you mix it with um, onions and mushrooms. And uh, so that was pretty good too. You really didn't even notice that it was in there. Um, the first one, you definitely knew when you got a bite of tofu. Hey, I'm having the tofu now. The second one that we've tried that was more like a Chinese dish, it was just, um, you know, pleasant, but you didn't even notice it. So I don't know. But anyway, we thought we would reduce our meat consumption. So we're experimenting with tofu recipes once a week. Well, that's good. I, I think that's a really good goal to have. I don't know that I'll take it up, but, <laughs> but I'm anxious to hear about more about what fun things you have to make with tofu. And lastly, so where can people find you? What's your website? Okay. My website is our farm name. So it's Avalon, A-V-A-L-O-N, Springs. So there's many little springs. So that one is plural, S-P-R-I-N-G-S farm. We only have one farm. That's not plural. Avalonfarm.com. Uh, and and what, what, what is your handle for Instagram? Oh, the same. That's all Avalon Springs Farm. On and Facebook too? Facebook as well. Okay, that's easy. So, um, And on your website, you have your farm yarns listed. You have your commercial hand dyes listed. You have roving for sale. Yes. yes. So what else do you have on your website? Dryer balls? Uh, dryer balls, a few little finished things. I need to get our, the, there is always going to be, I'm always adding things. I need to flesh out what knitting kits I have. And I do have some socks and hats that I'll put in the finished goods section. Um, I'm always adding more yarns. So yeah, it's kind of a work in progress. Yeah. Yeah, very much. So listeners, go to her website, avalonspringsfarm.com, and check it out. Thank you. Thank you. Well, that's this episode of the Flying Goat Farm podcast. If you enjoyed it, please consider leaving a review. Have a question you'd like me to answer? Send an email to goatherd at flyinggoatfarm.com. And to see our farm and yarn and roving, check out our website at flyinggoatfarm.com. Follow me at Flying Goat Farm on Facebook and Instagram, and I'm Goat Herd on Ravelry. Until next time, happy making. <laughs>